Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what are the limits of Hollywood's portrayal of technology? So today we're joined by an old friend and professor of ours from USC. He's an associate professor in the Cinematic Arts Department. His name is Steve Anderson. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks for having me. Ben, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. It's been quite a while. But, Too long. Uh, but you are actually our independent study advisor on a net neutrality project that we did in like 2004 four or oh, something. wow. Yeah. I'd uh, forgotten about that. I, I, I always think of you, John, as the uh, subservient president. Right. There was right. And that, was, that was also from 2004. Right. In another context, he was sort of our boss... Uh, Steve was uh, in, in building a, a, a sort of funny website. Um, tell well, the people is, about that, John. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, yeah, there was a viral video uh, created, the original one by, was it Burger King, I believe? Burger King, subservient chicken. Yeah, actually, it was a, more of a viral website that created what looked like a chat room situation where you could video chat through this really low bandwidth video with a chicken and, and tell the chicken what to do. And it was something about the advertising of, it was their, like a man in a chicken suit, right? of their new chicken sandwich. Like you can have the chicken sandwich however you want. So we're going to demonstrate that metaphorically by allowing you to boss around this chicken. And uh, you, Steve Anderson, had the idea to take this uh, sort of crass advertising <laughs> concept and uh, repurpose it for political satire. And so uh, you enlisted my help uh, at USC to build this website called Subservient President, where, exactly. you, where you could boss around then-President George W. Bush uh, and tell him to do things like look for weapons of mass destruction, and he would look for them under the desk. Uh, and you could tell him to torture a prisoner, and he would. Yes. And uh, it was pretty dark, actually. Yeah, I was and, involved as a crew helping to yeah. stage some of this stuff. And I was George W. Bush in a mask. Um, <laughs> and this got picked up by the Nightly News and, and a couple other venues. So, Yeah, it went out on CNN, ultimately. It was, we, we launched it right on the eve of the 2004 Democratic National Convention, which was taking place in Boston. It was actually the first time they allowed bloggers to cover the convention as if they were real journalists. And so it actually got picked up within that sort of newly formed network of communication. And, that's, and we got to be, oh my God, in the first, the first month it had something like 15 million views or whatever, 15 million plays. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's probably the biggest thing we've ever worked on then. I mean, quite possibly, yeah. Uh, so, so John, John went on to have a little like cottage boutique cottage career industry, yeah. doing these subservient uh, websites. He did one for some people in England. Yeah, so a marketing firm in England got in touch with, uh, I think you initially, and you, you forwarded them on to me because they wanted to make the spinoff Subservient Blair. Yeah. Which I again made Ted work on with me. Yeah, I think I played Bush in that one. You played Bush and I played Margaret Thatcher. We're, <laughs> and uh, we're going to have to link to this now. And our other friend uh, played, uh, played Blair. Blair. Yeah. And uh, I, the highlight of it was you could make them all play in a rock band together and they would play Rolling Stones covers. That's fantastic. And uh, yeah. yeah. So got the, paid a small amount of money for that. Those were fun days in the uh, sort of, you know, when the internet was a little bit more of a wild west than it is now. So anyways, our topic today. Yeah, but, let, but get, getting on to why we decided to have uh, the professor on the show today, we wanted to talk about uh, something that he's been working on that we thought was really interesting 
as part of this Technologies of Cinema project? Yep, exactly. So um, Technologies of Cinema is basically at this point a media archive that I've been assembling in the Critical Commons um, website. And in fact, anybody who wants to visit that just has to go to criticalcommons.org and type in the keyword techno cinema. And that pulls up about 500 or so clips that I've been pulling for the last three years, from mostly from Hollywood, film and TV. Basically, any time there's a representation of computational technology, so computers going back to the mainframe era, especially up through the PC era, I kind of stop short of things like mobile devices. Um, I don't do a lot with cyborgs or robots, um, but there's an awful lot of uh, different kinds of depictions of computers at various moments in time. Yeah, well, you got to draw the line somewhere, right? Because there's so much uh, technology in, in cinema to, to draw on. Uh, exactly. And I do think this is an Im- kind of an important topic and not just an academic one. I mean, I know that yours focus is more of a historical one, looking at the history of cinema. But I do think most people's perceptions of these technological issues, whether they're surrounding privacy or artificial intelligence and so on, are shaped by films, mostly. I mean, when I talk to people, I mean, obviously people like Ted and I and maybe our listeners sit around thinking about this stuff all day. But uh, when I talk to other people that don't necessarily, that seems to be where they're getting their knee-jerk ideas from, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, the references are always, you know, Skynet or something. Oh, yeah, still to this day. I mean, we're still referencing a lot of the same stuff. So, I mean, even... I I know that this is a historical project, but a lot hasn't even changed, it would seem. So... Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I was interviewed recently for by the New York Times um, based on them having discovered some of the clips that I have online when the movie Black Hat came out. And, you know, part of the thing that the arc, when you have five or 500 or so uh, clips of, you know, various people using, various kinds of people using computers, um, what you find is that Hollywood really easily falls into stereotypes. So anytime you have somebody who's competent or literate with a computer, they're either a super nerd geek, you know, pudgy guy sitting behind his computer, or they're the kind of black hat model of a super hacker, you know, super spy, super spook who's out in the world, you know, saving the world at every opportunity. Right. And uh, you've actually put together uh, one video in particular that I think shows a lot of these tropes just in action. And uh, I would encourage our, our listeners to check it out because uh, seeing the visual clips, I think, really ties together the whole message. Uh, but let's talk about screening surveillance, because this is a very polished video that you came out with on that particular topic. Yeah, okay. So, um, and I, I noticed that surveillance is one of the topics that you guys have covered in past podcasts. Um, so, screening surveillance was basically the first attempt that I made at stringing together the clips from the media archive into a, a linear form. Um, so, it's a more or less conventionally narrated kind of documentary or essayistic type video. Um, and, you know, I really just started out by putting them together in chronological order and just kind of trying to see what sort of evolution emerged from, from that process. And then in the course of making it, I realized that really it was a film about Edward Snowden. Um, and by the end, I realized that the prototype for Edward Snowden was Jack Black from Enemy of the State. Yes, <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> So yeah, I, I don't know for sure that Snowden like was inspired by the Jack Black <laughs> character, but the similarities are definitely there. Right. Well, and there's you know, it's not too far fetched to say that there might be some kind of feedback loop there because I think obviously the way that things get portrayed in these movies often gets aped by technology companies or people in the field, and so the notion that 
somebody might be inspired by watching one of these movies is not even that crazy, actually. Right, and these movies are tend to be researched as well to some extent. So yeah, they're they're definitely feeding and sampling off each other in both directions. I watched this movie just coincidentally, like only a few days after having finally seen Citizen Four. So the the theme really worked for me. I was uh, just the whole time just imagining uh, Snowden in that uh, hotel room while he were, I was watching all the footage of different uh, hackers in different movies. Yeah, I hope you guys can help me figure out a way to get it to him. I'd really like for him to see it at some point. Well, neither of us knows Snowden. You hear that in a saying? We don't know him. <laughs> we have nothing to do with him. Nothing at all yeah. to do with him. So I wanted, to, I wanted to pick up on that um, idea of the feedback loop between Hollywood portrayals of technology and actual technological development, because that's not actually an area that I've done that much with. Other people have kind of looked at that um, and tried to understand the reciprocal relationship between the way technology gets imagined on film and TV and the way it actually gets developed in Silicon Valley or elsewhere. Um, and you know, even that, that goes back to, I remember Constance Penley had a project called NASA Trek, um, that was about the way the guys at NASA were all these Star Trek fans, so they developed um, technologies that resembled things that were actually being kind of prototyped on Star Trek. So the idea of Hollywood functioning as a kind of space for design fictions, where ideas or desires for technology get worked out and kind of imagined as a, in prototype form, and then sometimes those are useful to industry and sometimes they're not. That, that's, a, I think, a really interesting dynamic, but it's not actually the focus of the project that I'm working on. I think I'm really more interested in the way that technology gets refracted through Hollywood. So it's, a, you know, it's very often a kind of um, perversion of what actual real-world technologies are trying to do, filtered by people's hopes and anxieties. When, it, when Hollywood focuses on technology, it's rare that it doesn't go in one of, you know, either a radically utopian or a radically dystopian direction. And we see that pattern over and over. Yes, and it seems even more so the dystopian vision is what I see over and over again. I mean, I can't even think of a recent utopia. But I guess, is, isn't that just... Well, Star Trek is the classic example Oh, of sure. That, right? But other than Star Trek, it's sort of hard to imagine. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the examples in the screening surveillance video are dystopian or technology as a negative force... And I think it's interesting to like sort of drill down on what the arguments in the film are for like why that happens, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, so so first of all, dystopia makes for better narrative drama, right. and Hollywood loves drama. Um, and I guess you know what I'm saying is either utopian or dystopian. Very often, actually, the pattern is it starts out utopian, then it goes awry. Mm. So it's both. And this is this is characteristic of Hollywood's fundamentally love hate relationship with technology. It plays out through both the the hopes and desires of the utopia, and then it often ends up in the dystopia of Skynet. Yes, that's a common narrative arc, and it's interesting because that you can see how that creates drama. But isn't it also possible to create drama where technology operates a bit more like it operates in the real world, which is that it's a trade-off of values, right? I mean, you, you really do get something from technology, but you often pay a price elsewhere. Um, and sometimes that price is worth it anyway, you know, and the technology does provide us with things we want. But we, we, we rarely see that kind of nuanced drama played out in a, right. in a Hollywood no, that's film. A that's a really brilliant observation, and I think it's it's too nuanced for Hollywood. <laughs> right. Well, the other thing is that technology is just kind of part of the background, right? You know, I mean, especially mm -hmm. old technologies that we've had for forever, like farming and stuff are just, you know, and then you build drama around characters and not around, sure. you know, evil new technology being the only driving force for good or bad, right? 
Right, sure. exactly. And I, I, I try whenever possible to steer away from sci-fi genres. Um, it's much more interesting, or it's often much more interesting when you find um, instances of technological use in like romantic comedies, you know, where it's not the focus, it's not this sort of fetish object, um, but it just pops up in interesting ways. So like something like, you know, all the gestural interface stuff with Marky Mark in Date Night, you know, this <laughs> goofy Tina Fey, Steve Carroll comedy, but all of a sudden here's this, you know, this sort of showcase centerpiece sequence with, um, you know, with all of these touch screens and gestural interfaces. Yeah, I remember that scene, and I uh, recently watched a clip of it on your uh, on your website, and yeah, it's like very sexualized the the gestural yeah. nature of it, and it's it's very odd actually. Uh, um, yeah, actually, I, I got another one for you since we're, we're like mining the archive now in Rollerball, right? So late seventies kind of dystopian, you know, sports as war metaphor. Right in the middle of that, James Kahn is this sort of rollerball hero, which is like it's a combination. It's like hyper violent roller derby, um, like deathmatch roller derby. But in the middle of it, he of starts like trying to investigate the history of his team's management and ownership, and he tries to you know go to a public library and he finds out that all the books have been destroyed. They've all been digitized and put into this centralized supercomputer. And he has to go to Geneva to try to access historical records of any kind. So there's this like weird digression within this genre film that's all about hyperviolence um, that goes into the way technology is taking over knowledge and history. Really, really interesting. A long, like probably 20-minute sequence of him trying to track down this supercomputer that ends up refusing to give him any answers. You guys are too young to remember that film. No, no, I haven't seen that. But it sounds, it doesn't. That general storyline doesn't surprise me, though, cause where it sounds like, you know, I mean, maybe it sounds I'm, like it's maybe a little ahead of its time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like 78. I mean, that's pretty early to be imagining um, libraries being taken offline and, and books being locked up with DRM. But is that like, <laughs> is that told in the movie with like a tone of like something is being lost kind of thing? Because I feel like that's usually the way this stuff is handled, where it's like, oh, sure. I mean, the that, loss sure of that. libraries and you know, analog humanness and so on. Is that how it's presented or is it more neutral than that? Yeah, it is. It, it's mirroring the loss of humanity in the sports hero being reduced to like killing guys on the roller derby floor, um, just as the, you know, our access to knowledge is being lost. It was actually, I just looked it up, it's 1975. Wow. Uh, and part of, so it's like, you know, right in the middle of the mainframe computer era. And it was interesting and unusual also because it, it portrayed a liquid core computer that had basically achieved sentience. Um, so, you know, we had Colossus, the Forbin project before that in 1970 that was like, you know, a supercomputer that goes awry and takes over and blows up, starts setting off nuclear bombs. Um, but in Rollerball, what was just, what was weird was that it was just not, it was not a sci-fi film. It wasn't a computer film. It just all of a sudden this this sequence shows up in the middle. Right. So you like looking for those moments in cinema because you feel like that's, you know, more revealing of what our sort of like latent cultural attitudes are about the technology than looking at like a sci-fi film or like wh why, why do you particularly gravitate towards those? Yeah. I mean, there aren't as many of them, so it's hard to, I, I can't say that I gravitate toward those exactly, but I do feel like they're more, they're differently revealing. Sci-fi tends to be much more self-conscious about what they're doing when they're talking about technology, and they know that they've got an audience of geeks that are going to be attentive to different kinds of issues. Um, but when you're watching you know, a romantic comedy, you get a different set of possibilities, I guess, that technology can play different kinds of roles. I mean, another, one, another really interesting historical example for that is um, Desk Set from 1957, um, which is a film that was actually sponsored by IBM. 
And it's this Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn romance um, that's also framed within the context of labor issues around computerization. So all the workers in this research library that um, Catherine Hepburn runs are worried about losing their jobs when they install this supercomputer. Um, and then when it comes, in fact, the first thing the computer does is fire everybody. Um, you know, so there's this kind of like the, the narrative drama is suggested by the dystopian vision. The worst thing that can possibly happen, the computer comes in and immediately fires all the humans. Um, but by the end of the film, Spencer Tracy is proposing marriage to Catherine Hepburn using the keyboard of the computer to do that. So it's kind of like this nice, you, like by the end, you don't have any problem believing that IBM actually paid for the film. <laughs> Got it. I got to see that. That sounds great. I have not seen that movie. And also, I want to say, I was not aware of Colossus, the, the oh Forbin project, before watching Screening Surveillance. The, that footage is incredible. I can't wait to watch that movie. The, um, <laughs> just like the gigantic 70s technology. Well, let's, let's explain what that movie is, right? That's So it's one of these early sentient AI taking over the world. Yeah, it's, so it's 1970. Wow. So it was, it was made just like a few months after the first ARPANET connection. Right. You know, so the, the first time computers were able to talk to each other over a distance, this film came out and it immediately imagined the U.S. supercomputer that was in control of the defense network getting connected to the Soviet supercomputer that was in control of their defense network. And the American computer actually ends up taking over, kind of absorbing all the knowledge of the Soviet computer. But then it goes on to take over the world. It, t it takes over the nu nuclear arsenal and it begins setting off bombs if the, peop if the humans don't do what it demands. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very much like uh, GoldenEye or you know, any, of any number of dystopian supercomputer films that followed. But this one was genuinely ahead of its time. Now, is that one of the ones where the, the sort of massive computer system is, in fact, sentient? Yeah, it becomes sentient and sexualized. So right. it's also, there are these incredibly lurid scenes of the computer watching the seduction between these two human characters. And it sets up these rules that the, the humans have to get undressed in front of the computer's cameras um, before they can go have sex in the other room. But, you know, it's, it's very bizarre and very weird. Another film that does the same thing just a few years later is um, Demon Seed, which is also kind of a, a schlocky techno sci-fi horror film where the computer actually manages I think to impregnate Julie Christie so that it can have a, a, a half human half computer baby that it wants to be the next generation of, of human evolution I feel like there's a common Hollywood trope and I don't know again I haven't seen these movies so I don't know if this falls into that where you know the computer it's sort of the Pinocchio type story and maybe this is the more creepy distance version of that where the computer is somehow curious about human emotions, human love, human sexuality, and you know wants to learn more about it because it's like the one thing it, it can't quite figure out. I mean, is there a quality of that to those movies, or is, am I off base with that? No, no, you're right on. And you know, in one of the projects that came out of the out of the assembly of this archive, I look at specifically at the way Hollywood poses a kind of critique of computing. So we can think of, at least within the field of entertainment, we can think of computation as posing a threat fairly early on. Um, you know, whether it's in the form of games or sort of like other things for people to do while they're at home other than watch TV. Um, and so from very <laughs> early on, Hollywood was um, pointing out all of the ways that computers could never be human. So there's this kind of implicit humanist critique um, that over and over says, you know, computers can't love, 
um, yeah, yeah, it's great that they're not prone to fits of, of rage or you know, passion, um, but they also don't know how to be loyal to other humans. And something like, you know, in the original generation of Star Trek, I think when we get this, this back and forth continually between Spock and McCoy, that's this kind of metaphorical dialogue about what computers can and can't do. So Spock is aligned with logic and computation, and McCoy is the sort of ultra-human figure. And there are a couple of episodes in the original generation where they actually deal directly with computation. Um, but it's an ongoing thing from, from then on, really from the 60s on. Right. I feel like we've only just barely begun to shed this idea of certain human values that are untouchable by computers as sort of a, our, our defense of our humanity against computers, saying like, oh, computers can't do this, they can't do that. It seems like recently I've seen movies begin to show us versions of computers that know how to love or you know have a sense of humor and that doesn't necessarily have to be commented on as something weird or impossible. Yeah, I mean, right on. Um, so USC did this um, event about cyberpunk uh, just a few weeks ago, and they, I did a, a screening program that um, was created for that event. And, you know, there was like, they had Rudy Rucker and Bruce Sterling, sort of all these sci-fi authors there, all these um, cyberpunk authors. And I, I put together a program for that cyberpunk event at USC a few weeks ago, and one of the things that was really amazing coming out of it was exactly what you just said. So few of these com computer films that are capable of imagining anything other than humans have to be at the center and technology will save us one day. Um, and really in kind of looking through the archive, combing through, looking for any examples that, that contradict that basic trajectory, the only example I could come up with was her where it's you know, the Scarlett Johansson AI operating system who transcends humanity and happily goes off, you know, leaves all of these pathetic humans in her wake to go off with the operating systems to create a new kind of all-cyber utopia. But that narrative, that conclusion especially, is, is particularly rare. And I haven't seen some of the, um, the re more recent films. Like you, know, you guys can probably speak to Ex Machina and um, Age of Ultron. I don't know if those are if that comes up in either of those films. Well, or actually one that comes to my mind first with regards to this issue is Chappie, uh, which, right. Oh yeah, right on. Which, which we didn't uh, love Chappie necessarily that much as a film, but it has a very unusual ending that's very pro-transhumanist and it does not stand up for these very traditional Hollywood critiques of computers at all, where they end up achieving immortality through emulating their brains like via the computer. Uh, and yeah. that's just seen as a good thing. Like they've just cured death and they're merging with the machines and like there's well, and no... Well, now the human hero is a robot. He fully transforms into a, an emulated huh. brain in a robot body. That's right, he, uh, he like saves his mom by he, uploading her, right? Right, to, like, that's and he also... saves his mom by making her into a robot as well. And, right. and so it's like, there's, it doesn't do the normal like pause to say, oh, but we need to still protect our sacred humanity that usually, even her actually had a little inkling of that at the end where it seemed like, at least for the human characters that were left behind, that maybe they were going to be better off, you know, with human, on human relationships. Well, like in our, you know... Oh, you're right. Yeah, it, I forgot about that coda that they tacked on. Yeah, in our review of her when we covered it on the podcast, listeners will be familiar with this, uh, we kind of criticized them for the fact that they'd probably just turn on the backup of Samantha tomorrow and <laughs> everything was just, <laughs> it's, you know, like there was something a little bit unsatisfying about that ending from the human perspective, but I agree that it's cool that 
the uh, the AI transcends and that we get at least a version of that, um, uh, which yeah is is rarely imagined in these pieces. Well, you, you compare it to something like transcend transcendence, uh, right? Yeah, transcend. or uh, free jack. You know, where it's like the the ability to upload the brain, you know, into the computer network is just is only bad. It's only right. evil. Uh, actually, you know, the other place where you get that, and this is also from the cyberpunk program, the two episodes of um, of the X Files that William Gibson wrote. Um, at least in one of them, there's a very um, at least ambivalent uploading of consciousness to the net, the computer network. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think those moments are. Few and far between, and, and unusual. I didn't even know William Gibson wrote any X Files episodes, so that's news yeah, to wrote, me. They're they're both they're both pretty cheesy, but um, <laughs> but they are William are they Gibson X Files. Not, not as good as Vince Gilligan's X Files episodes. Um, <clears throat> that's that's funny. So I wanted to bring up something that you talk about in the film that I thought was really interesting. Uh, one part of the argument uh, that's being made there, which is this idea of the tyranny of the visual. And the idea that, um, you know, in, in Hollywood films, because it's cinema, it's a visual medium for the most part, the depictions of computers tend to be visual depictions. And there's some limits to that, right? Like, yeah. they don't really show very well the abstract things that databases can do. They show very well the kinds of, you know, like interface ideas, you know, like everybody always talks about Minority Report or something like that. You know, there's a lot of... Yeah interface ideas that are really well depicted but what about you know the more abstract things of like what the government can do with a database for example or like when, what you talk about in the film is like metadata yeah i mean i think it's also interesting to look at um you know the inability to show what it looks like to write code right you know, we, we, we want that to be this kind of dazzling psychedelic you know sort of techno music fueled uh, extravaganza you know there's there's very little sort of just you know head against the desk kind of like oh god what 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 letters and numbers do i type next right john and i have a joke about this about like you know they fly the camera around the keyboard as somebody types at it i think the first movie i noticed them doing this in is hackers hackers many yeah, years ago but they do it in every one of these movies they do it in social network they do it in black hat in social yeah. network they very cleverly intercut some of the coding with a frat party that had a stripper Right? So you're just, you're watching Mark Zuckerberg code Facebook and then elsewhere, some other people are having fun is basically what the film's telling you, but it's like rapidly cutting back and forth just to give you something to look at, I think. Yeah, for, that, that, for no that, and there's an identical scene in um, Takedown, the Kevin Mitnick, one, one of the two Kevin Mitnick films, uh -huh. they, they do a cutting back and forth between him doing some of his uber hacking and his adversary having sex with his girlfriend. It's the same exact film. <laughs> Phenomenon. Right. As if they're, I mean, what, you know, in an Eisensteinian sort of sense, what are they telling us here? It's like, <laughs> you know, Zuckerberg's fucking the computer <laughs> through its keyboard. <laughs> I don't think we're allowed to say that on the internet. <laughs> well, yeah, too, especially with regard to surveillance, as you show in the, the screening surveillance movie is like, you know, that's often shown as a whole bunch of people in a giant room full of screens looking at the screens that are, you know, various camera feeds in people's houses, presumably, just sort of watching us, you know, as if there's like a bunch of government officials that are just paid to scroll through, you know. Which is always weirdly in like a montage of bigger and smaller screens. It's never it's never just a grid. <laughs> but, but but because yeah. that makes an interesting room. I mean, that, that gigantic right. control room yeah. with all the, the video camera feeds. Right. 
feels like surveillance in a very visual manner, but of course has nothing to do with modern day concerns about the NSA. Right. Black box algorithmic surveillance that's just, you know, sending some bureaucrat an email every time they think someone's up to no good. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the paranoid argument could be made that Hollywood is invested in, you know, making us all technologically illiterate. Um, You know, not necessarily that they're doing that for the benefit of the abstractions of NSA-based metadata surveillance. Um, but, you know, but what really interest does Hollywood have in, in having us be more technologically literate? You know, we don't, we don't have just kind of like everyday models for what it's like to, to learn to code or to be a coder or to have that just be something that's integrated. It's always positioned in these, these extremes. I guess for me, I wonder, like, how much can we attribute to the general economic incentive that Hollywood has to sort of either keep us in the dark or sort of keep itself in the dark. You know, like I, I've worked a little bit in that world and my experience is people aren't very technologically literate who are right. in that world. So they're not in a position to help <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh, how much of it is that? And then how much on the other side is just the limits of the medium and the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make pictures and you gotta sounds, shoot something interesting yeah. and you got to yeah. use pictures and sounds to get across whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, sure. as we talked about, you can encode some of this stuff into the narrative. You know, you can dr- dramatize any of this stuff, and, and, and there's reason to look into why, why that's not happening more. But as far as what gets presented visually, I mean, I'm reminded of the story of, uh, you know, Mockley and Eckert when they had to show the, uh, the ANIAC for the first time on television, realizing that, you know, very late in the game that their numeric displays weren't going to show up on TV. <laughs> Do you know the story, right? So they, no, no. they, they ran out to the store and bought uh, half a dozen crates of ping pong balls, sliced them open, painted numbers on them, and rigged them up to a giant board oh, that wow. would light up the numbers as they uh, came in with the, the census data or the election data, whatever it was they were, they were showing the computer doing on TV. I can't remember now. That's and, fantastic. And that was the first time anybody had filmed a real computer anywhere uh, and put it on television and the result was so uh, visually stunning that it, you know, it, it echoes through these representations for years. You, you see computers with giant numerical ping pong ball displays. There was never a working ping pong ball display. That was something they rigged <laughs> up for that one day. Um, and it was, it was simply just so that the black and white TV cameras with their you know, incredibly low resolution would be able to, to, to pr- portray it. That's fantastic. There's a digression here that's, I think, worth uh, saying. There's a terrific site that has been a source for a lot of my research called Starring the Computer. And these are, this is, I don't know if it's a a guy or a community um, of people who obsessively document every instance of a real world computer appearing on film or TV going all the way back to the 40s and 50s. Um, and it's been an incredibly rich resource for me in digging up and tracking down these, these examples. Um, but one of the really interesting things, if you look at that, is how how much of the um, of Hollywood's vision of supercomputing was driven by the availability of old decommissioned air defense systems. So there was um, the IBM Sage system, which was a strategic strategic air defense system from the fifties, um, which was these great big banks of flashing lights and switches and buttons. <laughs> 
And you know that was how computers looked for a little while. Um, but in Hollywood, they looked that way for much longer because when they decommissioned those um, air defense systems, they sold them to property houses in Hollywood. And all of a sudden, it's very cheap. You know, even in these kind of low-budget sex kittens go to college type movies, or there's one called Invasion of the Bee Girls, um, where all of a sudden you get these these decommissioned IBM mainframes in the background of scenes where you know. People are otherwise. It's basically softcore pornography, um, or you know, it, even like on episodes of Soap from the '80s. Um, so these computers, these these once working but now basically just flashing light display devices, appear in the background of an, an incredible number of films and TV shows, both high and low budgets. You know, O.J. Simpson is flipping buttons on a, an old IBM Sage computer in Towering Inferno. Wow. <laughs> See, yeah, that's hilarious. See, I, I suspect, you know, that sort of driving force of what's convenient, basically, what, what does the prop house have is what's right. behind a lot of these misportrayals uh, more than anything else, right? So, you know, the need to tell a visual story, the need to have easy props. Another one that is mentioned in your, in your video, actually, is like sort of the need to make evil easy to understand and sort of embodied by a singular villain for the purposes of telling a clear story. Right. Uh, and yep. how that kind of undermines these movies' ability to actually critique what you call systemic problems, right? Like Definitely. So Hollywood does a bad job historically of um, posing critiques of any kind of systems, whether it's capitalism or uh, the technology that drives surveillance. It's much easier to have like one bad factory owner or one bad computer scientist with a beard um, you know, who's responsible for all the bad things that are happening in the film. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's symptomatic of a larger inability of Hollywood to address larger social issues, social problems. Um, you know, it's not limited to technology, but it's, technology has definitely fallen into that category. Right, right. The thing that comes into my mind is like crime, where I feel like yeah, you know, right. the classic example of this is crime. And slowly in crime movies, we've gotten more nuanced, I feel like, over the last 20, 30 years We've stopped just having a single criminal bad guy and had more like societal factors playing into our crime movies, you know? Or, I, I have another digression for you. Sure, sure. So, so the series of video essays that I'm doing, of which Screening Surveillance is one, um, is inspired directly by the work of Tom Anderson. And he did that film called Los Angeles Plays Itself. Oh, it's that's a great movie. Back in 2003, now it's been 10 years. 10, 12 years. Um, but before that, he did a film called Red Hollywood that did a similar kind of rereading of clips from Hollywood films that were written or produced or directed by blacklisted writers mm. or blacklisted um, Hollywood figures. And it was really brilliant because one of the things that he showed was that uh, the, it, was a, it was a counter-historical reading of the censorship that was happening. So the, the House on American Affairs investigations, um, you know, the McCarthy investigations that were claiming that these leftists in Hollywood were introducing these subversive messages in the films. Um, it, pretty much everybody who wanted to defend the Hollywood 10 and those who were being persecuted and blacklisted denied that and said that, oh, no, no, that wasn't what it was about. You know, it was a witch hunt. There was no basis to the, the persecutions. But in fact, when you go back, as, as Tom did, along with um, Noel Birch, they excavated dozens and dozens of these films and found that, in fact, no. Um, back you know, before the Blacklist era, it was perfectly viable to have Hollywood narratives where people acted collectively and crime had co social causes. 
Um, and you didn't have to be a biologically predetermined criminal to commit violent acts. Um, and that was something that was actually eradicated from the narratives of Hollywood once that blacklist took effect. We didn't have leftists who were writing the screenplays that could imagine sympathy toward a criminal figure. Um, so I think, so, so yes, uh, we had a very bad stretch of, oh, I don't know, 50 years. Yeah, well, like <laughs> when, it was, the, when it was really difficult to yeah. imagine that crime could have social roots. But before the 50s, in the, the narratives of the 30s and 40s, it actually was possible, and Hollywood did put those forward, and it was thanks to a bunch of people who got punished for it. Right, and I think since a lot of those guys did eventually claw their way back, I think it's, we're looking at chilling effects there, right? I mean, I'm sure there were leftists both before and afterwards, but it's, you know, you get a sense of what does or doesn't go unpunished, and you adjust accordingly. Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's really fascinating, and yeah, I think we're just now with things like The Wire and uh, A Most Violent Year, starting to get into, uh, you know, a, a time when uh, social effects are, are taken into consideration in crime. And similarly, I think we're starting to see some movies which attempt to talk about uh, systemic issues in technology, although it's certainly not the mainstream choice even now. Um, one, of, one of the ones, I've actually just started watching um, Halt and Catch Fire, oh, yeah. which is inter interested in the moment of transition from the mainframe era to the personal computer era. And it seems to me to be really promising in that regard and kind of digging into the minutiae of the people, the social uh, dynamic of that transition, and especially around gender and the suppression of women's roles in developing software code and developing operating systems and actually programming um, in favor of the, the sexier and kind of higher tech um, fetishization of hardware. So I haven't gotten that far into that series now, but it seems to me to be an interesting counterexample. Yeah, that seems to be, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but I've seen the first season and I think that's going to be very much the focus of the second season is exactly what you're talking about, the sort of marginalization of software and then it's comeback. Um, it's, it's revenge. Huh. Um, I like that show. I think it does have some systemic critique as far as critique of the way the business of, of computer t technology um, works. And uh, not just one company being evil, but, you know, a bunch of people doing their best in a system that, that fundamentally produces some screwy results. Let's drill into commercial considerations, actually, because one, one of the distortionary things that was mentioned that, you know, maybe makes Hollywood give worse or less accurate or skewed portrayals was their economic incentives to say push you away from their competitors, like let's say video games. Because I know you right. did a little bit of work on looking at the history of how gamers are portrayed. But yeah, no, th thanks. That's, that's, a, that's a, a perfect segue to one of the projects that I was planning to shill for um, in this part of this podcast. So Excellent. this is, this is going to be coming out in something called the Italian Journal for Game Studies uh, any day now. It's in their, their upcoming issue, which is devoted to the relationship between games and cinema television. Um, and so I did a, uh, it's actually a, an online essay, it's not a video essay, it's actually a website um, that pulls together around a hundred instances where um, film or TV shows games or gamers. And part of the thing, one of the things that it does is goes back into the history of when film began depicting television and television viewers and trying to map the, the patterns and the tropes that we're seeing in depictions of gamers onto that history of the way television viewers were portrayed as bumpkins and illiterate morons and kind of bringing about the downfall of society, very much the way gamers are portrayed that way in the 90s. 
Um, so that project's called Bad Object 2.0, Games and Gamers. So in this project, I go back to um, the earliest depictions of games and gamers on film, and we end up in the early 70s. Um, and the first two instances are in Soylent Green from 1972 and The Parallax View from 1974. Um, and in one case, it's actually a woman, Charlton Heston's youthful sort of mistress, who's playing the um, computer space arcade in their lavish apartment. Um, and in the parallax view, it's actually a chimp who's playing a game of Pong in a lab that's uh, devoted to psychological testing for people who are hyper-violent. Um, so it really interestingly sets up um, the ways the games are going to be positioned as this debauching influence, um, you know, debasing society and, and turning it over to the women and the monkeys. Yes. <laughs> and, well, and do you really think that, you know, there's some economic incentives behind this? I mean, is that why it's so negative? Uh, is because this is seen as, I mean, back then it couldn't have been seen as competition, right? So, yes, yeah, so there's a very interesting, and I, I, I can't exactly argue that this is a causal relationship, but there's at least a very suspicious correlation um, between the way games were depicted over the course of the 1980s into the 1990s um, and the, the economic viability of the games industry itself. So, as we know, the games industry had this incredible um, early success in the early 1980s um, when it just seemed like everything was going in that direction. Games were going to completely take over domestic entertainment and video arcades were going to take over movie theaters um, until the crash that happened in 1983. And so there was this moment early on right. when there was this very positive depiction of, of games and gamers. And the was, image that pops was, into my mind is uh, from Blade Runner when the LA of the future is dominated aggressively by ads for only two companies, Coca-Cola and Atari. Fantastic, right? yeah. Right? Yeah, and if but, they'd only but, chosen Apple instead of Atari, they would have been right. <laughs> they were so close. So, so early on in the 1980s, we had this incredible respect um, for gamers. And you know, it was balanced in terms of gender. Um, it was tied up with um, work on personal computers. You, know, you were a hacker. You were also a gamer. Um, you, know, you were going to make a lot of money in the industry one day. And it was only after the crash and then the resurgence of games later in the 80s into the 90s when they actually became economically viable in a way that was going to actually challenge Hollywood that we began to get the worst and most damaging tropes of gamers as these kind of debased, homicidal, you know, morons. And that's, that's kind of the model that has, that has stuck, you know, and that does correlate with, you know, I don't know, at whatever point it was in the 2000s where the games industry started outperforming the film and TV industries combined, um, we had these, these models of gamers as, um, as being really bad, debased people were locked in, and that's been with us, with a few exceptions ever since. And you, and you said it's the, more or less the same for, for television, right? I mean, I, it's more yeah, or less... what is the yeah. trajectory for television? Because initially, television was definitely considered a, an adversary of, of film, yeah? Absolutely. But yeah. nowadays, I feel like that's not exactly the case anymore. The, they've merged no, to a point I, where, where we no longer think of TV as being that different from cinema. Especially, right. especially when there's games. And, and, so, but, and so you just have to look at what's happened with the industry. 
So we've had this vertical integration and this incredible conglomeration of the film and television industries. So those are all owned by the same corporate interests. You know? So there's, there's no longer the, the separation between the film industry and the television industry that allowed films to just say how bad TV was and how stupid TV viewers were. Well, and increasingly, I think it's a lot of the same people working in those industries because the, the film industry has, has shrunk so much in the last 10 years. And the television right. industry continues to grow. So a lot of folks who made their living in film even as recently as the 90s, you look up what they're up to now, they're working yeah. in television. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, but, but that critique even, even preceded the economic challenge of TV to cinema. So, you know, in 1935, there was a film called Murder by Television. It's like a low-budget Bela Lugosi film about how TV rays were going to be killing you in your home. This is made by Cronenberg as a baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cronenberg does get into it. Um, but, you know, it's like then you, you track it up through the 50s, Aaliyah Kazan's Face in the Crowd in uh -huh. 1957 was about how, all, how stupid and illiterate the moron TV viewers and how easily manipulated they were. You know, you can look at Death Race 2000. Mm -hmm. um, just pulling, I'm scrolling through this now. Sidney Lumet's Network in 1976 was yep. all about the, um, the ways that television was this quintessential manifestation of capitalist economics and it was going to bring about the total downfall. Well, and Patty Chayefsky is absolutely like this guy you're talking about, you know, who uh, you know, totally overestimates and underestimates the technology and also like represents it as this singular evil, whether it's exactly. in, in network or in altered states, which is like the same thing with, uh, yeah, yeah. with in vivo genetic engineering, basically, and, right. and drugs. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. like I like this over underestimating thing. This is something that I, I a, a phrase that was in your screening surveillance video that I was like that really summarizes in like one phrase. Yeah, something we've been talking about what, a lot. I yeah, think. what a lot of the problems with the portrayals are because it's like you know here is this bizarrely sentient system that you know has a personality that it really shouldn't have or wouldn't have or is somehow overestimated in its capability, but at the same time you know it's got you know one. <laughs> button that turns it off you know <laughs> so it's like clearly underestimating it as well uh and I, I i just love that way of yeah or like they have hoverboards and they have jetpacks but they don't have cell phones they have yeah. no way to call each other right you know uh without going to a payphone and putting a dime in it just like you do in in the world that created the film sure you know and it's it's like uh yeah there's something where we we kind of gripe about a lot on this podcast yeah or or you know the, the fact that cronenberg basically stopped making technology films i mean he was the one who could have done it yeah and existence i think is like that isn't maybe his last sort of sci-fi film and yeah. it it it's maybe gets as close as any of these get for me to being a believable portrayal of the amount of power that the technology can have like it has that inception type ending where like it's 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 ambiguous you know uh but um but but up until that moment it's pretty you know it's pretty viscerally estimating the power of the of like you know immersive vr type technology i think relatively at, a, at the right pace you know long live the new flesh <laughs> yes yeah. so that can be the end of the podcast yeah i don't know should we wrap it up long here? live the new flesh <laughs> this has been uh it's been an hour yeah, no, I think it's about time to wrap it up. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so before we wrap up, Steve, is there anything else you wanted to, like, plug or tell our listeners about or otherwise um, get out into the out into the either? Um, yeah, no, I mean, the links that are going to be posted along with the podcast um, will take people, I think, to all the different projects that I've been working on, all the different manifestations, you know, the video essays, the... Um, 
the kind of text and video combinations online. Um, but really the most important one is the collection of media that's in Critical Commons. And the idea of putting that stuff up there in public is precisely so that other people can access it, watch it, come up with their own ideas, they can download the full resolution clips, um, make their own video essays, do their own stuff with it. Um, it's, it's what I've been calling a process of researching in public. So it's not just writing the stuff, but it's actually making all of my research materials available publicly so that other people can do maybe even completely different oppositional things with it. That's really cool. Uh, this is a really great uh, collection of stuff, so you guys should definitely go check it out. And if you're the type of person who... Uh, cuts together videos. It's a great collection of source clips. Uh, I really recommend you go s uh, look at this movie, Screening Surveillance, that we'll link to, which Steve made. It's 30 minutes, and it's a really fun thing to watch if you're interested in technology or cinema history or both. Uh, it's kind of in the style of like an Adam Curtis. It's like an essay with video accompaniment, and it's really well done. I really enjoyed it. Um, thanks for being on the program, Steve. We really enjoyed talking to you, and hopefully we'll get you come back another time and talk about something else. I'm sure we could do this for hours. Thanks a lot, you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay, so thanks for listening to our episode with Steve Anderson. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that we're going to be coming out with this comic book called Let Go soon, and that you can keep tabs on that if you go to letgocomic.com and put your email address. We'll let you know when we launch the Kickstarter. This is going to be a indie comic book that's going to deal with a lot of the topics that we talk about on this show, accelerating change, technological unemployment, the end of privacy, and we're really excited about it. And yeah, in reference to what Steve was talking about, it's also you know an attempt by us to tell a nuanced uh, technological narrative that doesn't fall into this uh, tyrannical trap that Hollywood products often fall prey to. Absolutely. And... Uh, you know, enough of our plug, though. Let's, uh, I want to thank the listeners for continuing to email us with their feedback. Uh, we're not going to do a listener feedback section today, but we're going to keep doing that feature whenever we feel like we have enough to talk about. If you keep those letters coming, then maybe we'll have enough to do one next time. Yeah, so we'll figure every few episodes we'll do a little mailbag section here. Also, as the very last thing before I say goodbye, I want to call attention to a Kickstarter that's live right now for a new website that's going to be called Scout. And the idea of Scout is that it actually combines journalism with near-term science fiction to talk about tech economics and morality. And what I understand is they're going to do a series of issues online. Each one's going to tackle a different topic, like say the, the impacts of genetic engineering on class and privilege, things like that. The type of questions that we actually like to talk about here on this podcast. So I figure our listeners might want to take a look at this Kickstarter and see if this is something they want to support. I'm certainly excited to see how this website turns out. Sounds like a really interesting idea, mixing journalism and science fiction. So that would be joinscout.com, and that'll take you through to the Kickstarter. That's all for today, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks. Subscribe or leave a comment on this episode. Please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>